0: Steve, happy monday glad to have you back man
1: (laughs) yeah i just ran a little bit of a gauntlet there i don't know i was home for like 30 hours over a 14 day period i think something (laughs) like that like three kind of back-to-back trips uh one with the family and two for work so it was good yeah i went um, one of the trips in the middle there was going to the uh, six hour had their hunter games and um they had uh got packs from us to, to get to all the competitors. So they wanted me there to make sure everybody was fit. Right. And, and just wearing the packs. Right. And it was, uh, it was, um, it was fun for sure. Had a good time over there and tried to do the best I could to make sure everyone got their pack on and, and fitted. Right. It's still amazing. Um, to me, even there's so many, um, people that just don't wear a pack. Right. Right. Like, I mean, one of the guys over there was a guide and it was like, you know um he's been hunting his whole life and guiding and still like wore the pack too low and had the harness you know kind of in the wrong position and yeah um so it's it's uh i guess very um critical just to get a good pack fit and and understand it and i guess even if you've been wearing our pack for a while but never watched a fitting video i guess i suggest going out there and and watching that on youtube and checking it out because you'll probably pick up a few things
0: yeah yeah and i Even if you're not wearing an EXO, I'd still go watch that fitting video. There's certain adjustments that you maybe can't make on your pack, like you can do with ours. But I think, as you said, like the principles are there of, uh, you know, where things should sit in general, that may be a little bit enlightening. Absolutely. Yeah, cool. So you did that and have you said you had some family trips and then just this weekend just got back uh what last yeah, night just rolled Tamarack, in late right? last night
1: from Tamarack from the Northwest Mountain Challenge. We were up there all weekend. I got up uh went up middle of the week last week, set up the course, the pure elevation course and had a good time doing that. It's always fun to uh just make some really challenging shots. It was definitely one of the uh, more the more difficult as far as like scoring goes, you know, I put some targets at like just to hit so quartered away that the 10 ring was maybe like an inch wide. Um, did some fun things like that, steep up and down. And it's uh, one of the fun things um, I was talking with somebody up there is I can, as I set the targets, I can basically tell you, uh, especially if it's a new target, right? I can tell you where all the holes are going to be from the arrows. So if it's uh, like one was a mountain goat at the top and it's a, it's a side hill steep downhill shot. And all the targets are down left, right? And it's not gravity pulling it. It's people's third axis not being set right. Um, And then if it's a target uphill uh, at an angle, they're going to be off to the right. And so it's just a good indicator. It's like proves over and over and over again that, you know, third axis is important and most people don't have it set right. Um, It's kind of fun to see that happen. Just it's been so consistent
0: over the years. A one inch tin ring is brutal, man. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> That's made, just uh, that was yeah i made that one tough i put out like uh they have these uh, little like they're called one third elk so it's like a one third the size and I, it's oh, even yeah, smaller than that yeah and when i was setting up the course i kind of basically i have like i go drop off all the targets i you know throw them on the backpack hike them into where i kind of want the shot to be and um the mini elk i dropped off and i had the shoot stake and sign with me i just kind of started walking in the direction back towards the truck that i also knew the shot was going to come from and then it kind of like looked over my shoulder yeah that seems about far enough and then dropped it on the ground and then the next day i basically start at the beginning and like set all the targets uh shoot stakes and signs and hang banners and flag everything and i got to that one and i was like "Yeah, that looks about right and i didn't pull out the rangefinder it's hammered in the stake and then like I'll, I'll just check the range real quick and it was 91 yards it's like that's, <laughs> oh that's that's gonna be a tough one on a <laughs> one-third like a tiny little mini elk at 91 yards so yeah. um yeah no it was fun I, I i enjoy setting that up and just making it challenging and then we obviously uh every year we go shoot it at 6 a.m on saturday morning kind of get up with the sun and get up there on the mountain and it, it's just fun like you kind of feel like you're hunting you know that like cold mountain air and just had a blast
0: yeah that's cool man Yeah. It's been a, it's been a busy month. I can't believe we're essentially wrapping up June here in a week or so and moving on to July and uh, yeah, just to, you know, throw it out there for guys who may be interested, whether you are considering a pack, like we're in really good shape right now on inventory and stuff is shipping quick. I know it, it, I think it's almost funny. Like we have a note on the website of, you know, we're essentially shipping in one to three business days, but there's so many, not just in the hunting space, but so many delays right now, right? Due to COVID and the lasting effects of that. And people almost, I think, don't believe it. Like they'll still get calls like, (laughs) Hey, I saw your website that you guys shipping, but are you really shipping? Yeah. Um, So if you guys are looking, we are in good shape and just to kind of answer those questions in advance. And same time, if you're a pack owner uh, and you have any questions, I mean, things just get crazier by the day, uh, for us leading up to hunting season. So again, if you got questions on fit, we covered the fitting video. Um, if you need a buckle, you know, something like that, like you slammed one on the car door, like now's the time to reach out and we'll get you taken care of. So just want to yeah. encourage you guys to do that. Cause, uh, we're getting busier and busier by the day, but yeah, man, let's, uh, let's dive into some listener questions. It's good to have you back. I did a, a solo Monday minute last week, kind of answering some stuff that you either don't care about Steve or maybe didn't have experience. No, with I, I actually did. Thing.
1: I listened to that when I was driving to Wyoming for the SIG event. And I was like, I need to, I was going to like, Mark, I need you to send me your lab radar chrono so I can play with that thing. So,
0: yeah, dude. Uh, yeah. yeah, Put that send sucker that. in the mail. Yeah. All right. So, so for this one, this is a fun one. See, it doesn't have like a, a right or wrong question, but I think these are sometimes fun just to think through this guy wrote in and said, thanks for the podcast I really enjoy them. Uh, and they've helped me in the field. Here's my question and some context to go with it. This guy is essentially in Idaho, uh, in college. He's going to have this coming season and one more season left before he then probably moves back home uh, to the East coast. He's been out in Idaho a couple of years uh, and hunted archery season. Uh, he's over two, but has had some good experiences. He basically says leading up to this hunting season, he has two choices. He can be a weekend warrior with his bow for the whole month of September but can only hunt the weekends due to do a schedule, or he can get a full week off of school and work later in the fall and do a late rifle hunt. Uh, and if he does that, he's connected with some guys where he can do like a full horse pack in wall tent, kind of like traditional hunting camp uh, during rifle season later in the year. So he's just debating on those two and just kind of wanted our take again, not that there's a right answer, but what are the pros and cons and and what are our thoughts? And he does say two important factors are number one, he does prefer archery in general. Um, and then number two, just kind of like keeping in mind, he has these two elk seasons left and then uh, he wants to hunt Idaho and other Western States again in the future, but they're going to become out of state hunts because he's going to move uh, right. back home. Just be harder to do. So yeah, they'll just be harder to do. So uh, yeah, he just kind of wanted our thoughts and, uh, I'll let you kick it off. I definitely have some thoughts, but what are your, what are your first th- thoughts, Steve?
1: Man, that's a tough one. I think as as your first reading off the question, I was like, ah, just weekend warrior, hunt your, hunt your butt off, get some experiences. I think if he, you know, one of the answers or suggestions to a new hunter is, Um, you just got to go out there and have as many experiences as possible, uh, not be picky, kill a lot of animals. You know, you just, there's no, um, we're going through the, um, our roundtable series right now. Right. And we've done a few of the interviews for basically, they're just questions on like, how are the best hunters successful? And the end of the day the answer always comes back to like, you just have to go out there and have experiences. Um, you're, you can only read so much and listen to so much and talk to so many people that um, uh, you know, you just got to take that information and then kind of go out there, forget all the information. Cause you need to be somewhat instinctual out there in, in the heat of the moment and not be in your head so much. Um, but you just have to, you know, it's a culmination of all of these experiences and interactions with, with game, you know, with elk, how do they react to movement and sound and wind? And you just got to go out there and figure that stuff out. So kind of the, the more time in the field, the better. On the flip side of that though, if the guys, um, that he could possibly be rifle elk hunting with are experienced hunters. If those guys, you know, if, if they got a camp of three four dudes going in and they always kill a couple elk every year, They're probably going to provide some really valuable information. You know, I would just chalk it up to like maybe you don't kill an elk, but you're probably going to learn a lot from these guys um, and take that into future seasons. So tough call. I mean, I could, I could, you could really easily argue both sides of that. Um, I, I think, yeah, again, if those, if they're very successful guys and there's a chance to learn a lot from them, I'd probably lean more towards that. Uh, If they're not, if they're guys that kind of go out there and never kill an elk or kill an elk once every three years, then I'd probably stick with going solo bow hunting and, and get it, try to get it done that way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That was to me, one of the biggest considerations, like these guys that you're potentially going to go with, are they do they go to elk camp every year to like get away from their wives or do they go to hunt? Right. right. <laughs> like, Do they have experience? Are they successful? Do you have the opportunity to, to learn from them? And honestly just even observe them like that's uh, having been able to do that myself, like be around more experienced hunters. I always take away so much from that, regardless of what I, regardless of the hunt, like what I personally get out of the hunt, just the experience of being with experienced hunters is, is always worth it. So if they're killers and they're willing to take you that'd be hard to pass um aside from that like there's definitely things about the archery season that have benefits too number one he said he prefers it uh at one point he kind of mentioned like the excitement of archery season so obviously that is a scenario where if you're just like love the experience of bugling bulls and whatnot like that can be tough to pass up and obviously you're uh much more likely to get that in september especially since you'd be hunting through the month of september um, you know, and the, to me, there's benefits to, you know, if you say you have eight days of hunting and those are broken up in four weekends in September or a straight eight days later in the season, it's, to me, there's benefits of like experiencing the month, right? Cause weather is mm-hmm. going to change, mm-hmm. behavior is going to change. Yeah. Um, there's just a lot of benefits to that versus you take eight days later in the season. And I mean, you may have three good days of hunting in there like maybe you have eight i don't know but like weather can change things patterns and elk can change things hunting pressure from rifle season can change things and like even take our recent bear hunt uh our bear camp it's like you have we had so many hunters out there that the number if you just take the number of like hunting days in the field, it was like a ton, but because they were all consolidated into just kind of a few rough days of conditions and bear behavior, there wasn't much success. Mm -hmm. And so by spreading out your days in the field across the month, you're just going to have a more likely, uh, more likely encounters and like kind of higher action potentially. Um, so I think
1: if I was him, now that I thought through this, I'd bow hunt September and then I don't know exactly what late hunt they're doing, but probably guaranteed there's a deer tag going on at the same time. I just go, I grab your rifle, have a deer tag in your pocket and just go tag along with those guys, um, and get the best of both go experience September and, and then just tag along with those guys just from the perspective of, Hey, I'm here to learn. And if a deer steps out, I'll shoot it. You know, you could have a bear tag. You could have a wolf tag. There's plenty of other animals to shoot while he's out there.
0: Yeah. I like it. Cool. Well, yeah, that'll be, uh, we'll have to get a follow-up and see what he chooses and how the season goes on that one, but there's some thoughts for sure. Um, Steve, this one I read and it applied to both you and I uh, in years past. He says, I sleep on my side and struggle to get and stay comfortable while backpacking. Are either of you guys side sleepers? And if so, do you have any suggestions? Um, I'm a side sleeper as well as a back sleeper, but I just I flip and flop and move and kind of constantly change positions, even at home when I'm comfortable, um, but definitely a side and back sleeper. And I know you're pretty much a side sleeper, right, Steve? Yeah. Yeah. I
1: love to sleep on my back and stomach, but because of uh,
0: my lower back issues, I have to sleep on my side. Yeah. Otherwise okay. I wake up and can't move. Yeah. So being a side sleeper specifically, what has helped you get and stay comfortable uh, in the backcountry? Um, and I've just figured this out
1: recently. I've, forever, I was messing I was t- messing with different pads, right? Um, and hands down, the most comfortable pad is the C to Summit Comfort Plus. Um, it's the red one. It's an incredibly comfortable pad. It's just heavy. Uh, it's really heavy. It's like 27 ounces or something like that versus you can go with the Thermarest Neoware that's going to be 12 ounces. Um, it's a really, really heavy pad, but very comfortable. What I figured out, though is the key is really just air pressure inside the pad. Um, so what I do now is when you're inflating the pad, I probably inflate it to what you would perceive as like two thirds full. It's still like, there's not, you know what I mean? It's still very floppy. Um, and then I crawl in and I lay on my side and basically I kind of, bounce up and down with my hip and and I want I want to like if you do like kind of a slight bounce I want to just barely feel the ground underneath with my hip and then that's perfect so that when you're when you're laying there your hip isn't touching the ground but you're also getting as much um kind of uh you know softness plushness out of the pad as possible so you know historically i would just inflate it till like it was full full and then lay down and complain that my shoulder was going numb and Um, you know, it's just uncomfortable as I'll get out. And I found that just running much, much lower pressure in the pad works. Um, but you just can't, if you run too low, then all of a sudden your hip hits the ground. And then within that, I found just different pads have better structure and kind of integrity to them that, um, some of them, uh, I'll pick on big Agnes. They seem to be kind of terrible for this. Um, they're just very, um, I don't know. It's really easy for that hip to hit the ground, right? Like you just, you go anywhere below fully inflated, uh, your hip hits the ground where the ThermaRest, um, I can run that thing. Like you get off it in the morning and you think it's flat, right? There's not much air in it, but it's providing enough support to keep my hip off the ground. And then also just give some cushion. Um, so that's the pad. And then the next thing I found is just having a pillow. I mean, I, for years, I never packed it or I'd use a puffy and do what I could, but then there'd be nights where it's so cold. I needed to wear the puffy. I didn't have anything for a pillow. Um, really the that's been huge in that, um, side sleeping kind of just basically just support your head and take pressure off of your shoulder. That was probably my biggest issue would just, you know, I'd be on my side and then every 45 minutes to an hour I'd wake up and it's like my shoulder and my entire, you know, say I'm on my right side, my right arm would be completely numb. I'd roll over and then wake up the next hour and my left arm and shoulder would be numb. So, um, that pillow has really made a drastic change. Um, for that.
0: Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I mean, my experience is really similar, um, figuring out having a thick enough pad, but then as you said, like the, the level of inflation is key. And I just used to blow up a pad till it was blown up and sleep on it. And I was like, Oh, you don't have to do that. Right. <laughs> like you can find tune to, and that's, I mean, honestly it goes back long enough where, you know, I don't want to say every pad right now, but most of the pads I've used in the last handful of years kind of have those valves where you can really fine tune the air pressure. Um, mm-hmm. so it has, you know, a valve you can open fully to dump all the air, um, when you're packing your pad up, but it, it has that middle stage valve where, Um, You can just kind of push it and it just lets a little bit out um, versus like some of the older pads I've used have the twist valve, which isn't as easy to fine tune. So to me, I even look at that now um, as I'm looking at pads on even the valve structure and how easy is it going to be for me to get it just right? Like that's a consideration I make for sure. Um, But yeah, that's key. Um, It's just not like don't just blow it up and assume you have to go there, but figure it out. And I'm really similar to you. I essentially look to, have just enough pressure to keep my hip off the ground, but not much more than that um, at all. So, yeah, hopefully those things would help for sure. We did have um, a random question I know that came up recently. Somebody was asking about, you know, they were kind of an active sleeper, like I mentioned I was, and they were new to a pillow. And they were saying, yeah, the pillow is great, makes a difference. But I guess he found that he was kind of constantly losing the pillow through the night or if it was sliding off or something like that. Um, and so there's a couple things there. One is you can, obviously it depends on your sleep system. Um, if you're using a mummy bag or something similar with the hood and having the pillow in there is obviously going to help contain it. If you're using a quilt like I am, where you don't really have anything up top to help hold the pad. Um, there's a couple different things you can do. I've seen guys even um, run a strap for their pillow. I don't go that far. Um, you can do like little beads of silicone either on the pillow or on the sleeping pad up in the pillow area to kind of give it some grip to hold on. Um, that's something I've done in the past with certain pads that are just really slick or pillows that are really slick, um, or it could just be your pillow choice as well. Um, if you have something that doesn't have like a brushed face, it's not going to have as much grip so if you have two, obviously super slick surfaces on each other, you're going to be more prone to that pillow sliding everywhere. So it could be pillow choice. It could be sleeping system setup. If you're struggling altogether, consider something like silicone to kind of give it some grippiness. Um, but that was just random one that we didn't have on the list. It came to mind.
1: <laughs> yeah. I,
0: um, You know,
1: every, like at some point during the night, I end up like sleeping on my stomach. Uh, and I, I, when I do that, I push the pillow like out of the way. And so. I haven't actually tried to attach the pillow to the pad to keep it from slipping that, um, the seat of summit pillows I have, they have like this kind of Velcro sticky stuff that you can kind of put on the pad and the pillow. Oh, um, but I've, yeah, it's kind of pr- pretty cool. I think Pat in the office, he's been doing that, uh, if I remember right, but I haven't messed with it. Uh, cause again, I, sometimes I want that pillow out of the way. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's definitely, it is annoying for sure. You just wake up and you kind of got to reposition it. So yeah. I guess the other critical aspect to all this is some type of sleep aid, um, whether that be like, usually for me, it's like an Advil PM. Uh, I, I did do some like melatonin gummies in the past that have worked pretty well. I'm not near as groggy in the morning, which is kind of nice, but they also don't knock me out as well. I don't get as good as sleep. So
0: kind of pick your poison there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, And some guys, you know, I know guys I've hunted with that have done earplugs just because they hear every little thing, right. especially if you're Mm -hmm. hunting in a group or you have other guys, whether they're in your tent or just near you. And you have a jerk like me, who's like flipping from side to side in the night, (laughs) making noise. Like, so yeah, just, uh, yeah. I mean, think of honestly, anything you, you can do to reduce your chances of waking up. And we've talked A whole bunch about why sleep is so important on a multi-day hunt for sure so just figure out what you need to do to get the best sleep you can um all right so this guy wrote in i feel this is going to affect a lot of people um so it was definitely something to touch on for sure he says he drew an archery elk tag this year he's super excited about but he's heard concerns about the area he will be hunting having serious fires this summer and into the fall Um, so he's asking, how do you monitor the moisture conditions and, or fire potential in your hunting area? And how do you modify your hunting when there are dry conditions or fires in the area? Um, so to me, kind of two separate things. One is hunting in areas that are dry in general and what effects that have that, that has on animals and then two fires specifically, Um, And then how do you kind of check those monitor those? And again, what effect would they have? So um, the, the fire issue is something I've run into multiple times with areas I've been planning to hunt and essentially had to, to not hunt those areas because of fires. Um, And it's also just good to look at, even if a fire is not affecting your specific hunting area to it's good to know what fires are around and in the vicinity and then to consider things like prevailing winds and weather patterns and even smoke, right? So you may be 30 miles from a fire, but that fire can affect your hunting area um, just to, due to the smoke. Um, so there are, there's a lot of, honestly, there's several great websites to check um, on fire statuses um, to not only see where they are, but you can monitor them essentially day to day and see if they're growing, see what level of control they are under. And things like that. And uh, one of the ones that I use a lot is called Incineweb. And I will leave a link in the show description for that. But it is uh, inciweb.nwcg.gov, IncinnaWeb.nwcg.gov. Again, link in the show description. But that one's helpful. There's there's other sites out there that do overlays on like Google Maps and things like that. So the data is there to know where are the fires, how are they burning, how are they contained, um, and to look at the history. Obviously, things like Onyx Maps are going to show you data on fire history if you're looking to hunt specifically burns. But to track active fires, that, that website I mentioned is really helpful. Um, obviously, a fire can... I would, I would be aware of even if fire doesn't affect your specific hunting area and not just things like smoke conditions, but I would be like, if you have a fire in a bordering units, like if you're doing OTC Colorado, right. And there's a fire in the unit next to you or in a part of your unit, I would think about all the hunters that that fire displaces as well. Right. So there's been in, I can't remember if this was three years ago, maybe there was a fire on the far side of a unit that I was planning to hunt. And just the way the unit was laid out, there's only so many access points. And I knew that even though the fire wasn't affected where I was planning to go, I knew it was going to push a ton of hunters to the point that I wanted to go. Um, It was just going to displace hunters and concentrate hunters who wanted to stay in that unit but now had to use different access points. And so that's one example where I chose to just bail altogether. The fire wouldn't have affected me directly, but I was super concerned about the hunting pressure because of the fire that was in a a similar area. So that's something to consider. Um, again, that mostly applies to OTC stuff in terms of hunting, um, just in dry conditions in general. Um, what are your first thoughts there, Steve? Again, he's talking archery elk. Uh
1: elk need water, so find water. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty simple. I mean, if it's super dry and, and water's um, you know, not where you're at, they 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 freaking need it and they're gonna travel and find it. So wherever you find water, you're probably gonna start seeing elk tracks again. Sometimes you can get um, you know, we've talked about like you know, if a new hunter goes to Colorado and they're in an area and uh you know, like fresh elk sign is pretty critical. Sometimes you can get, um, tricked cause you'll see fresh elk tracks, but they're probably just traveling to water, you know? Um, so I just, yeah, you're going to have to find springs, find some Creek, like they, they need it to survive and, and they're going to go find it if
0: it dries up everywhere. So that'd be, that's first and foremost what I'd be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, obviously there's different ways to try and to find that. Cause there's, large water sources that won't be dry. There's obviously a lot of intermittent streams that can be hit or miss. Um, I've even found it where there's little like small springs and kind of seepers that you're not going to see that listed as water on a map, but as you Mm -hmm. change imagery um, you'll just see it holding more green than areas around it. And so sometimes I'm finding water, not by looking for water, but literally just for looking for green. And I'm talking like pretty small areas, but those can be hot spots, man. You find that, that small seeper spring that again, isn't a mapped water source. Um, but the elk certainly know it's there. Um, and that can be, that can be really important. I, I feel like, again, I'm no expert here, but Colorado was super dry last year, which is where I hunted in archery season. And I was in a unit that I had experience with, um, multiple years. And so to me, I like saw firsthand the effects of a super dry summer, um, and those drought type conditions and how it changed an area that I had familiarity with. Um, and it, it was tough to hunt and figure out. And I think it's more important than ever to stay mobile because you are going to have to go find those little pockets and find water to find elk. But I think at the same time, what it's doing to the elk is it's, it's clustering them together. They're not going to be, in my experience spread out um, because they're holding close to that water. So you may have, you may essentially see larger herds, more bulls together, at least in proximity, um, simply because of that. So to me, I felt like it decreased my chances of, you know, kind of bumping into that satellite who could have been bouncing around anywhere because he's now having to stay, you know, close to the water, therefore close to the elk and it really just kind of concentrated elk in pockets. Um, so yeah, just stay mobile, look for those little spots, um, try and find that sign. You can always, like you were talking about Steve, find a water source, find fresh sign. Maybe they're coming to it, but maybe you work your way backwards to kind of figure out from this water source, here's some sign where are they going to, um, and play that. So to me, you you just, there's this right, as we talk about all the time, a right amount of like aggressiveness and patience, right? You got to be really aggressive to cover ground, to find the pockets, but because the elk may be concentrated, um, once you locate them being somewhat patient in your your actual hunting strategy, right? Because if you find the elk and you find the water, the elk want to be there. And so to me, then it becomes, I got to hunt smart because if I don't mess this up, the elk are going to stay here. They're going to stay near the water And now it's, what's the best way to hunt them as they're here. Um, not always relevant. That's, that's kind of my experience for sure. All right, Steve. Um, anything else before we wrap this one up, man?
1: Getting close. close. (laughs) I I saw someone post on Instagram last night or this morning, but like 70, 71, 72 days till September, it's, uh, going to go by fast here. We're going to be there and I'll be, uh super lucky and be sheep hunting in the Frank church wilderness. It's going to be awesome. Well, you, you,
0: you say you're sheep in the Frank church wilderness. You just skipped over an awesome sheep. Oh. Don't get ahead of yourself. <laughs>
1: yeah. They actually, they're, um, it might get canceled. Uh, Dwayne, seeing- the outfitter called. Yeah. And uh, the, by bio- all the, the numbers are just so bad up there that they're, you know, they've debated shutting down the units and, and haven't really? yet. Um, so they were, yeah, it was kind of bad news. we got last week, um, but whatever we'll roll with the punches and we'll figure it out. If even if it does, we'll just push it off a year or two.
0: Yeah. Wow, man. Yeah. All right. Well, listeners as always, if you have anything for us, uh, send that email to podcast at X Super excited about the podcasts we have coming out between now and opening day. Um, bunch of content, a bunch of good content, a lot of stuff we've recorded that hasn't been released yet. I'm excited to get out there. So as always appreciate you guys tuning in. Um, if you haven't yet hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app. So you do receive those future episodes automatically. Uh, if you heard something that could help somebody, be sure to share the show with them that would, uh, help them and help us as well. So as always, thank you. We'll talk to you soon.